To Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of MT Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn through Barnum's own words about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. Bills and Boardmen. We last left P.T. Barnum in London, having recently arrived there from Paris, and he was diligently working to get a firm schedule in place so that when General Tom Thumb arrived in mid-December, he could begin performing right away. Despite the general's extraordinary rise to fame when he came to London in 1844 at the tender age of six, the same level of acclaim was not guaranteed a year later, and Barnum was having to hustle to make a go of things. Exhibiting at Egyptian Hall in Piccadilly was the closest thing to a bird in the hand, assurance that delighted visitors would tell their friends and spread the word, but he still needed to publicize the levies they would hold there throughout the day, while also trying to book his protege in a theater for late evening performances. Finding the theater business in London had gone soft, Barnum was shaping a plan that would have the entourage leave the city shortly after Christmas, go to Newcastle for two days of performances, and then on to Edinburgh, Scotland for New Year's. In the meantime, Barnum would strive to do the very best he could during their 12 days in London, and he set to work on the advertising and promotion strategies. Barnum's early December letters in the 1845-1846 to 1846 copybook 
reveal the range of methods he would use to attract the public to see the American man in miniature, as General Tom Thumb was billed. Some are the same we saw him use in France, printing up bills, that is, handbills and small posters, and parading the miniature coach and ponies on the streets. But he also added other means to ensure no opportunity was missed. Discovering there were such things as advertising vans piqued our curator Adrian's interest. You may recall that as young Charles, General Tom Thumb, was traveling throughout France, Barnum occasionally wrote to his father, Sherwood Stratton, or another member of the entourage, reminding them not to forget the cuts. He meant the woodcut blocks used to make engraved prints for advertising and news magazines. As they moved from place to place, these needed to be picked up from printers and brought to the next town, where they would be used to create the next set of handbills. Thus, they supplied both the art and text. Barnum's copybook contains sample texts, and paid a printer to put it all together. Now, in a letter dated December 8, 1845, we learn that an extra-large cut had been made, one that Barnum particularly wanted to use in England. Trying to ensure the forgetful Sherwood Stratton did not leave it behind, Barnum wrote him, Don't fail to bring that big equipage cut, and also one of the big bills as a model. At the end of his letter, he emphasized, Don't forget anything. The placement of print advertising took several forms, with newspaper ads and bills pasted onto exterior walls or public posting places being the most obvious. Barnum also told Stratton he intended to have ads put on vans, which he would rent from a fellow named Peel. Barnum wrote to his printer in London, a Mr. Francis, to let him know of his plan and what he wished to have made for that purpose. I can probably have some of the vans on Monday next, which are now used by the cattle show. At all events, I shall have similar vans, with both ends covered, the driver going on foot, and in that case, I think therefore you had better print a large bill for one end of the van as follows. General Tom Thumb, 25 inches high, weighs only 15 pounds. He has not increased an inch in height, nor an ounce in weight, since he was seven months old. On the other end, we will put the smaller bills and cuts that are the size of life. You may print 100 of those large ones for the ends of the vans for I can use the balance of them in the country. I think that perhaps you had better add the following to the mammoth bill for the side of the vans. Admission, one shilling. Children under 12 years, half price. Send some of each kind of bills to Peel Tuesday night or very early Wednesday morning. Peel furnishes two vans. I shall expect to get out my boardmen early Wednesday morning. The mention of cuts the size of life is intriguing as this suggests there was a woodcut image of Charles at or nearly 25 inches tall, though the reference to life size might be stretching the truth. A two-foot woodcut seems exceptional, and wouldn't you love to see it? The mammoth bills meant for the sides of the vans would likely have been made up of several sheets of paper assembled to the desired size. Rotary printing presses that used continuous rolls of paper had only recently been invented in the U.S. in 1843, so the large bills Barnum was having made were likely still the multi-section kind. The next day, December 9th, Barnum penned a message to Mr. Peel, letting him know, Mr. Francis will send the bills for the van tomorrow, Wednesday morning at 7 or 8 o'clock. 
Francis could not put the coat of arms in the body of the large bill, so you must arrange something on each side of the van over the top on which to paste the coat of arms. One van should be all day tomorrow near this place in the vicinity of the Smithfield Cattle Show, and the other can go about the town in various parts, and after tomorrow let the vans be at the Egyptian Hall every morning at nine o'clock, and get their orders from my agent Mr. Clark for their route. Barnum was also planning to hire boardmen to walk around in areas where people would see the sandwich board ads. Probably some of the large bills he ordered were to put to that purpose. As Charles was scheduled to be at Egyptian Hall every day from December 15th through the 27th, Barnum would presumably have his boardmen walking in the Piccadilly area. Both the vans and boardmen would be on the streets five days in advance, thus able to spark anticipation and word-of-mouth advertising that could attract substantial audiences from the very first day. Charles would have a heavy schedule, holding levies from 11 to 1, 3 to 5, and 7 to 9 each day. Plus, Barnum hoped to book him for eight late-evening performances at the Surrey Theatre. He wrote to Mr. Nash, the manager of the Surrey, on December 7th to say, I should be happy to arrange with you for him to give his performance at the Surrey from 9 to 10 o'clock on the nights of the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, 22nd, and 23rd of December. His little equipage with four ponies would promenade the streets in your vicinity a half of each day and also appear on the stage in the evening. Should this suggestion be entertained favorably, please drop me a line to the above address, and I will call on you tomorrow, Monday, evening, at any hour you name. Since the location of the Surrey Theater on Blackfriars Road in Southwark is not close to Piccadilly, one wonders how Charles could possibly make it there in time for a 9 p.m. performance, and if he would simply skip the last levy of the day at Egyptian Hall. Perhaps Barnum's plan to have the miniature equipage driving around in the vicinity of the Surrey during the day, convenient to going on stage at night, was meant to buy time until Charles could arrive, but that's still a stretch. Barnum used several approaches in the language of his advertising. In some cases, the message was framed as the last chance to see the general before he departed for America. In other examples, his achievement of having met European royalty was emphasized, with an impressive list of the kings, queens, emperor, queen mother, royal families, and nobility he had entertained, and the promise of his appearing in his new French court dress, worn at the Palace of Saint-Cloud, as proof. Should that not be sufficient incentive, the ad also announced, The magnificent presents received from the first crowned heads in the world will be exhibited. One ad claimed that over 1,500,000 people had seen the general in the last two years, Another bumped the total to two million, but who was counting, right? A handbill from the previous year, November 1844, claims a mere 300,000. In almost every example, Charles's physical attributes of 25 inches, or 63.5 centimeters in height, and 15 pounds, or 6.8 kilograms in weight, are touted as the same since he was an infant of seven months. But the ads gave his age as 14, in reality, he was just shy of his eighth birthday, which would be on January 4, 1846. The addition of six years to his true age continued for quite a long time, an effort to make his small stature seem all the more remarkable. Barnum was fond of telling his correspondents, 
you will find he has much improved in vivacity and intelligence, but he has not increased a hair in height or weight since he first came to England. Though Charles's tiny stature made him a curiosity to people, he was also a performer who, under tutelage, had developed costumed character roles to present at the levees. These included impersonations of Napoleon in full military dress, a Scottish Highlander in his traditional tartan, a citizen wearing an appropriately dignified suit, and emulating Greek statues in various classical poses while clad in a white leotard outfit. Regular admission to see all this cost one shilling, and children under 12 paid half price, or sixpence. Half price and complimentary tickets would also be part of the strategy to draw audiences to Egyptian Hall, so Barnum contacted a printer right away to place an order for special tickets. Some would admit two without charge. Another version entitled the bearer and his companions to enter for sixpence each, regardless of age, and a third version admitted just two people at sixpence each. With Charles's last day at Egyptian Hall scheduled for December 27th, the entourage had only one day to travel to Newcastle, located on the far northeast coast of England, about 280 miles, or 450 kilometers, from London. There, they would need to get settled before his performances on the 29th and 30th. After that, they'd be on the road heading to Edinburgh to arrive on New Year's Day. A week's stay was planned there. Although no other definite arrangements for a UK tour are mentioned in this group of letters, Barnum sounded confident when he advised Sherwood Stratton, We'll do pretty well in London and get through Scotland and Ireland before cold weather presents. Extra Exertions in Dull Times In this episode, we will have a look on both sides of the Atlantic, first zooming in on London to see how Tom Thumb's December performances fared, and then on to New York City, where the American museum manager Fortis Hitchcock had received another of Barnum's very long letters detailing his ideas for the coming winter season. Since Barnum invariably told Hitchcock, after providing lengthy instructions, that the decision to implement his ideas or not was entirely up to him, one can only imagine Hitchcock rolling his eyes each time he opened a letter from Barnum, saying to himself, What will it be this time? Few people are as driven and energetic and bold as P.T. Barnum was, and that's what makes his life story so fascinating. But he did not act rashly, at least not often, and the copybook letters reveal his cautious side as well. Barnum's plan for a short run of performances in London meant he had to hustle to make the most of their 13 days, especially so when he discovered that the theater business had become sluggish. He tried out several advertising and promotion methods, including incentive tickets. After finishing in London on the evening of December 27th, a long day's journey brought the entourage to their next destination, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, on the far north coast of England. Undoubtedly, Barnum used the travel time to think more about strategies and ideas for his museum in New York. Though only in Newcastle for two days, he found time to finish up his long letter to Hitchcock, and also write to his showman friend in Boston, Moses Kimball, before heading to Edinburgh, Scotland on New Year's Eve. From Newcastle-upon-Tyne, he provided an update to Hitchcock on December 30, 1845, noting, We have arrived thus far on our way to Scotland, and shall be off for Edinburgh tomorrow morning. 
We did tolerable well in London, though the general lost three days by a cold, just as we got the steam up. Barnum had advertised in advance of General Tom Thumb's arrival from Paris, so that the public would be primed to purchase their tickets right away. Knowing that certain days and times might not draw a full house, Barnum experimented by offering incentive tickets, admitting two at half price, copying a strategy he had learned in France. As he explained to Hitchcock, In France, the theaters adopt the following plan during the dull season of the year, and whether it could be safely and beneficially adopted by you in the dull winter times is something which you must judge and not try it if you think that it would be an injury on the long run. It is the issuing of tickets of favor, which entitle the bearer to enter the theater on given days, such days as the manager supposes it will be a poor house, by paying half price. Barnum noted that the last two days of their time in London grossed 230 pounds, or $1,150, which he was not displeased with, though he said it was only a trifle over their expenses, and hoped they would soon begin to lay up once more. He related to Moses Kimball that many persons went away unable to get in during the final two days, which suggests they would have made a greater profit riding the wave of success had they been able to stay longer. Barnum must have thought the tickets of favor contributed to their success, yet he seems to have talked himself out of employing a similar tactic for the American Museum, even as he explained his plan to Hitchcock. He cautioned, Tickets of favor must be used very judiciously. For instance, they must be always placed in the hands of persons of respectability, so that no loafer will get hold of them and sell them about the door, and the very chance of such a thing might be an insufferable objection to it. He went on to list the conditions under which the ticket plan could reasonably be implemented, such as chiefly giving them away in Brooklyn and at a good distance away from the museum in the city of New York, and never giving more than four to any one person, lest they might be thrown away and afterwards sold at our museum door. Barnum also stressed the importance of perceived value. They must always be given in such a way as to have the person receiving them look upon them as a particular favor and thus not cheapen the museum in their eyes. Rethinking all he had just written to Hitchcock, he concluded, After all, I don't believe the plan will answer for a permanent institution like ours, for it strikes me that if a person once gets such a ticket for half price, he or she would always remember it and never pay full price again. And there are other obvious objections to it. So, on the whole, I think unfavorably of adopting it. Yet you can think of it for yourself and do as you please. Barnum was contemplating the winter season ahead with its few tourists and the resulting drop in ticket sales at the museum. But after weighing the pros and cons of incentive tickets, he decided... I guess we had better stick to our old price and plans, and depend on custom in dull times only by extra exertions, and when there are no strangers in town, try to exhibit such novelties as will please citizens. The novelties he had in mind for the locals included his newly acquired religious views, and a fine model of the city of Venice that he had seen for sale in London and was trying to purchase. Admitting that he had offered 50 pounds for it the other day, and the man laughed at me. He planned to try 80 pounds, though the seller asked 100 pounds. If he was successful, he would have it shipped to New York at once, and suggested to Hitchcock, You can fix it up to tickle citizens in the wintertime. 
Venice, with its canals and gondolas, its bridge of size, etc., etc., is very celebrated. Mindful of keeping the museum's costs down, he added, It will be such a kind of thing as can be cracked up, and as it will not be drawing wages, it will be just the thing for dull times. Probably Angelo, or a hundred other persons whom you can find in New York who know Venice, can give you all the explanations, so that you can give them to some other person whom you can engage to explain the model at certain hours of the day and evening. Barnum was also keen on featuring a Chinese collection at the American Museum, and began considering how to expand their current display. He informed Hitchcock that a Chinese robe for the museum had been included in a box of harness being sent to circusman Avery Smith by Mr. Fillingham of London, an agent whom Barnum referred to as Phil in a previous letter. He advised him, I have sent in the same box the Chinese robe of the Emperor of China, elegantly embroidered with the Order of the Dragon, etc. You may not perhaps make much of a feature of it, Still, it will make a line in the bill, and you must put it in one of our cases, so as not to let it get soiled more than it is already. It will help a little towards making up our Chinese collection, which, by the way, you had better try to extend by sending to China, if you can, by the steward to some ship sailing there. I think Moses Kimball might send out by some ship from Salem, Massachusetts, and get a lot of figures for us like those in the Boston collection, if they don't cost too much. Think of it and do as you like. Afterwards, Barnum wrote to Kimball, telling him, I have been talking seriously with the present proprietor of the Chinese collection in London about bringing it to America, but find it would cost too much. Undaunted, Barnum turned to his showman friend in Boston instead. Can't you get for you or me or both of us some captain or steward of a ship sailing to China? to buy a lot of Chinese curiosities and bring them over at a fair price. I would like much to have, say, $3,000 worth, taking the most striking subjects that could be selected from the collection now in Boston. Will you try to find a proper man, perhaps a merchant engaged in the India trade, and let him look over that collection with you, and then order articles such as you name, enough to amount to from $2,500 to $4,000? If you can find such a man that can be depended on as honorable, I'll take it as a favor for you to give him the order for me, and the money shall be forthcoming at any moment. He closed the letter with the reminder, Please, do not forget this, as you did the revolutionary pictures, and I'll feel bound to do as much or more for you. In fact, Barnum was already working on returning the favor. He had succeeded in his goal of dining with the popular author and playwright Albert Smith while in London, even taking a room at a location that would facilitate a last-minute arrangement to have dinner together. Triumphantly, he told Kimball, I dined with Albert Smith twice last week. He is a devil of a clever writer. Explaining his purpose, he went on, He has just been dramatizing Charles Dickens' new story of the cricket on the hearth, and I tried to buy for you the manuscript copy. Five pounds or ten pounds would have bought it, and nothing if you did not play it, and make it available. But unfortunately, he had the same day sold the right of printing it to some printer, and it would be all over London by the 26th of December. You could not have an exclusive copy. But Smith said it gave him a new wrinkle, and that the next thing he wrote he would be happy to furnish you. By the way, does Ryan supply you with new plays, or does anybody else? If not, I'll get another man to attend to anything of the kind which you desire, 
if you'll tell what it is. Though unable to acquire the manuscript, Barnum was determined to get a copy of the new play for Kimball and wrote to Smith himself, asking him to please send forthwith a copy of your play Cricket on the Hearth by post to Mr. Wilmer and Smith, publishers Liverpool, and charge all expenses to me. Wilmer and Smith would send it out immediately by steamer if received by Friday that week. Barnum also directed Smith to write on the cover Moses Kimball Esquire, Boston Museum, Boston, USA, from the author. Even as his letters are filled with business matters, Barnum did not neglect to express his concern for others. We learned from a previous letter that friends in London had entrusted him to help get their son to America, in part to break off an undesirable love relationship, and the parents had depended upon Barnum's kindness and connections to help their son adjust and find employment at his trade, making saddles. Barnum followed up with Hitchcock a few weeks after the young man's arrival, letting him know that, If that young Englishman, the saddler, whom I gave a letter to you should be ill, or unfortunate and want money, you must let him have a reasonable amount, say, not exceeding some $50 or $60, and by letting me know it, his parents will pay me. And not forgetting that his pregnant wife Charity had been feeling very lonely and would benefit from company, Barnum added a postscript. Should you or your wife or brother happen to be in Bridgeport hereafter, I hope you will call on my wife. I am sure she would take it as a great kindness, and I certainly should. B. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino, and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.